Welcome to HBTV. I'm Harry Binswanger, the HB in HBTV. Today we are taking up some questions and then continuing the discussion of the difference between the objectivist methodology of Ayn Rand and the methodology of philosophers. And I extended the assignment. I decided to take the whole of philosophy because almost no one has had the right methodology in philosophy. It's not just that we're at war with contemporary philosophers, although there the war becomes more acute. It's that we're at war with 90% of the philosophers in the history of philosophy. And it's very interesting to contrast the methodological approach of Ayn Rand and all of them, starting with Thales, who's one of the few we're not at war with, <laughs> actually. So let me take up some questions from the chat. There's some interesting ones. This is a comment by Michael. The good news is that there will never be another Immanuel Kant. Ayn Rand called Immanuel Kant the most evil man in mankind's history. The reason for that is he is the one who ended the Renaissance and the Enlightenment. He's thought of as an, an Enlightenment philosopher. He's an anti-Enlightenment philosopher. He called him, what he was doing a Copernican revolution, but it was an anti-Copernican revolution. He wrote a book called The Critique of Pure Reason, which was a critique of all reason. There's no such thing as pure or impure reason. There's only reason. And he split reason off from the real world by a device I refuted in another, uh, well, it's really Ayn Rand who refuted it in another program that you can look up. But that's what he was taken to have done, to have split reason off from reality. And then philosophers had to choose between reason without reality or reality without reason. So Michael says, the good news is there will never be another Immanuel Kant. Once we defeat his trickery in academia with smooth sailing, humanity is set for eternal paradise once objectivism becomes locked in. No, not really. First of all, it's, there will never be another Kant, but you can't say there'll never be another successful irrational argument. It's hard to believe that there would be another successful anti-reason uh, argument, but it was probably impossible to believe it in 1775 that there would be a successful attack on reason. So no, no philosophy ever gets locked in. However, I think you're um, on the right track because there's a difference between a complete and consistent defense of reason, this life, and freedom, and a three-quarter defense, or a seven-eighths defense. If your defense has holes in it and gaps, you're eventually going to see people exploit them. It's like having code 
on the internet that can be hacked. Now, there's no such thing as hack-proof code, and the analogy is this saying that Ayn Rand liked. I don't think she originated it. She heard it. You can make something foolproof, but you can't make anything damn foolproof. And there will always be damn fools. The, pro the uh, good news is that if it's really bad and stupid, it, the, the worse and stupider it is, the sooner it will be replaced and solved. Uh, stingy students, I already spoke about, he was, says he was primarily trained in analytic philosophy for his undergraduate degrees. Anyone systematically parsed through all analytic philosophy yet? If not, I might. Good luck to you. Yeah, Leonard Peikoff has, not systematically, no, but gone through the, um, such as it was up to the time when he was a graduate student, about 1964. Uh, there's a, a few good books, Reason and Analysis by uh, Brad Blanchard. Uh, I think it's um, this book by Ernest Gellner, which I was going to say Word and Object, but that's Quine's book. Uh, it's something like Word and Object. Ernest Gellner, who's an English non-analytic philosopher, but none of them are really wonderful. Blanchard is, has many good points to make of a polemical nature. And Michael said, says, could I do a video refuting David Hoffman? And as I said, I've never heard of him, but I'll look him up. But look at what he, uh, Michael says about him. He claims to have come up with a series of equations proving reality does not exist. Now, that's a perfect motto for what we're going to discuss today. Series of equations proving that reality does not exist. If reality does not exist, there's no equations. Not just no equations in the mind, there's no basis for mathematics, there's no source for any concepts. Even if you believe internal existence exists without the world, which is impossible, you couldn't have mathematics and equations without uh, perception of quantity. Uh, Nascente says, since extending human life is so much more important, could you make a program about it? Well, I'm going to do a lot better than that, I suppose. Um, yeah, I can, I can, I think I can do it. Uh, I'm not sure if it's appropriate given I'm funded by the Ayn Rand Institute and the Ayn Rand Center. UK, but I believe in much more than extending human life. I believe in rejuvenation, or as I call it, younging, that people like me will become young again. And I think that's been shown to be possible. It's certainly been done in mice. And uh, I'd like to do a program on that. 
the life extension is small potatoes. Michael says, do you see today's academic philosophers being persuaded by objectivism? No. Since I've been around for 60 years and they haven't been, I mean, 60 years of advocating objectivism, or will they ultimately have to be replaced by generations to come? Well, the, yes, and, and current generations. Yes, and probably the whole project of philosophy, well, no, I won't say probably, maybe the whole project of university education and philosophy is going to be replaced by internet courses. There's the Ayn Rand University, which is getting underway as an online center for learning objectivism. Okay, so let's now go to, if you're interested in the Ayn Rand University, of course you can Google it, but just go to the Ayn Rand Institute because it's a project, a major project of the Ayn Rand Institute. Okay, let's go to uh, picking up from where we left off. That was all based upon a question by Michael who said, doesn't it get under your skin? That was, those weren't his exact words. Doesn't it bother you, annoy you, irritate you, frustrate you that academic philosophers dismiss objectivism when it is so valuable and, and has so much to say? And, and I did a whole session on the comical nature of contemporary philosophy with the caveat that by contemporary I mean ending in my knowledge in about 1980 or 1990 because I just don't know that much about what it's become now and I hear that it's improved. But Classical contemporary philosophy, 1950 to 1990, uh, they think that we are comic book philosophy and we think they're jokester philosophies, not serious. Not uh, Brand Blanchard, whom I mentioned a minute ago, had a good term for the contemporary philosophers, and it was the clever sillies. And that, that is the correct description of the very, very clever, very um, dense, some of them, and hard to read, hard to understand. But in the end, they are saying ridiculous things, meaningless things, incoherent things, and they have no system, no, no content, nothing to put forward of a positive nature. So let's take a step back now and look to philosophy per se. And what I'm saying is philosophy must square with reality. Philosophy must square with reality. It's not discussing, well, is there a reality or isn't there? Because what would it be to get the answer right? Oh, the way the world is, is that there is a world. Or the way the world is, that there isn't a world. 
Those are circular or self-defeating statements. The presupposition of doing philosophy is that there is a world, that you know it, that you exist, and that there is such a thing as answering a question. So philosophy must square with reality, must correspond to integrate reality. How? How do you know that you've done it? How do you do it and how do you know that you've done it? And objectivism says, by context, holding context and obeying the hierarchy of knowledge. By integrating, that's context, integrating all your knowledge into one consistent whole, all your claimed knowledge into one consistent whole, and then proving it, reducing it to perception. Perception is inerrant. Perception cannot be mistaken because it doesn't say anything. But it gives you information. You know a lot of things based on just seeing or hearing or smelling or touching them. Dogs have knowledge, not conceptual knowledge, but they are aware of reality. And knowledge is a kind of awareness of reality. Awareness, consciousness is the axiomatic concept, and knowledge is a form of having an awareness. What form is it? Well, we'll get into that, but basically it's a conceptual form or a perceptual form, and it's something that you retain. It's something you possess. Knowledge is not a fleeting state like I'm now looking around and I'm aware of things, but I won't hold it. I won't remember it. I can't reproduce it in my mind. But when you know something, I, I know the capital of Maine is Augusta. I happen to be in Maine now, and that's why uh, I may not be as good on video and audio to you as you're used to seeing in these series. I know that. That's a permanent possession of my knowledge. I know that 12 squared is 144. I know many, many things that I can call up from memory because they're stored, permanent, stored and retrievable, permanent possession. So the two ways that objectivism champions for knowing that you know and distinguishing knowledge from either ignorance or mistake that is from both ignorance or mistake, is knowledge is integrated into the full context of other knowledge and it's reduced to reality through sense perception. So it's logic, knowledge is logic applied to sensory information. Logic, logic is the method of checking for contradictions with everything else and for retracing back to the perceptual level, higher elements of uh, in your mind, higher cognitive elements. Ayn Rand named two fallacies, one for not doing the integration and one for not doing the reduction. 
well, for violating the integration and violating the reduction, not just not doing them, for violating. Refusing to integrate into the full context, you call context dropping. Context dropping. And it's a fallacy of making a statement or holding on to some idea which you know better than because you have other knowledge that you're not using to uh, integrate with that knowledge. So the hoary example, the two hoary H-O-A-R, age-encrusted examples are quoting out of context. Uh, so you've seen those reviews of plays. Uh, exciting New York Times. Well, what it actually said was uh, this play is exciting the worst elements in man's soul. But they just take exciting and drop the context, i.e. the other words that the person taking it must have known and using it out of context. And the other is, we found a cure for cancer. But unfortunately, it kills the patient, but it does stop the cancer. Well, to hold on to one element in medicine, the killing of the cancer, while dropping that the purpose of it is to keep the patient alive is a form of context dropping. Leonard Peikoff once said that the whole science of economics as practiced today is context dropping. Economics is context dropping, is a little hyperbolic, but Henry Hazlitt, the great economist in the Austrian school, student of Ludwig von Mises, wrote a book called Economics in One Lesson. And that one lesson, which he carries through the whole book with countless examples, brilliant book, is you have to look at all the effects of any change you introduce, for example, government control. Not just the immediate effects on certain people that you favor, but the effects across the whole economy and through all of the time spirit, uh, period that's relevant. So that's context shopping. The other is stolen concept. Now, philosophers have had some inkling of that context dropping is a uh, fallacy, and there is a traditional fallacy that's pretty close to it called uh, converse accident, not one you've heard much about, but, and also secundum quid could be looked upon as uh, context dropping. But stolen concept is something that I, no one identified as a fallacy before Ayn Rand. Stolen concept is uh, exhibited by statements that you, it's a violation of the hierarchy of knowledge. It means you can't reduce something back to perception. So you define 
one you grasp one concept in terms of another and that other in terms of a third but then you make a statement that uses that higher level concept that i began with to deny the lower level concept the concept that is needed to define the concept you started with so you're sawing off the limb that you're sitting on, the, the branch of the tree that you're sitting on. For example, the universe is moving. The universe is moving. Where? From where to where? Every, every place is in the universe. There's no bigger thing within which the universe can move. Well, what about space? To use space as not being any as being anything other than a relation among entities things in the universe is to deprive it of all meaning so there's no such thing as a cosmic graph paper in which the stars are you know can be situated there's there are only things that define places a place is like on my desk or in my garage, or within the Milky Way galaxy. There's no nothing, there's no infinite nothingness in which the universe has a position. Nothing does not exist. What is not is not. That will be a corollary of, no, it's a direct statement of the second philosopher we take up. So stolen concept is a hierarchy violation that involves using a higher level element of cognition to deny its own base or more widely to deprive it, to make a statement that deprives it of the differentiation on which it is based. So if I say, you know, there are a lot of things on the left, but there's the idea of something being on the right. I'm not talking about political. I mean left, that's my left, and right then. That's a myth. There's leftness, but there's no rightness. But there can't be left or that. You can't grasp the concept of the left without contrasting it to something that isn't left, right? North and south, okay? Uh, everything is indoors. The universe is indoors. Everything is indoors. Well, how can it be indoors if there's no outdoors? So you get the idea. Ayn, Rand, Ayn Rand's whole approach that's so distinctive is to avoid stealing concepts, to maintain the hierarchical structure of knowledge, to recognize what knowledge develops out of earlier knowledge and to never use that higher level knowledge that's derivative knowledge to deny the base that makes it possible but almost all philosophers do both drop context and steal concepts but stealing concepts is like their specialty and it's a little wider than stealing concepts it's stealing whole statements whole sciences sometimes like physics is what physicists do 
the statement by a philosopher of physics. Physics, physics is defined as what physics, physicists do. Well, how do you know who a physicist is? Now that's kind of more just circular, but you see the anti-hierarchical nature of that. Physics is what physicists do. That's how you understand what physics is. Now, the very first philosopher was a hierarchical philosopher. He started at the beginning. Thales. Thales said, in a statement that seems amusing to us, everything is water. Now, the important thing was that he said something about everything, and that's what he's known for, and that's where he started. Everything is water. So he was trying to reduce all the forms of existence, which did not include as many as we know about today, but trees and rocks and wool and food and the things that you would have had six or seven hundred years BC to one basic kind of stuff. He thought it was water because he was aware that water could freeze, water could evaporate so it could become a, a gas or uh, a solid or be a liquid. Later philosophers changed that and suggested other things, but the idea of stating something true about everything that exists was a good beginning for philosophy. Then there were a lot of people who said, no, it's not water, it's fire. It's not fire alone, it's fire, earth, and it's not fire, it's the hot. And so that's not important. The next philosopher who got things right was better than Thales in this respect. He said, there's one basic principle, it is. Now that's what Ayn Rand refers to as existence exists. It is, he added, and it cannot not be. Or in other words, what isn't, isn't. So there is no vacuum. There is no outside the universe. There is no realm of non-being. But Parmenides didn't, didn't have an understanding of the senses. And he, was, uh, he made a lot of mistakes and came up with some real absurdities. But his starting point was hierarchically correct. It was the right place. It is. That's the point. That is how we start. You're born. You see stuff. It is. That's it. Plato, to go to a philosopher you know, is a good example of an anti-hierarchical philosopher. Not as vehement and violent a one as was to come later, but Everybody knows, for instance, there's many anti-hierarchical anti things in Plato, but everyone knows about Plato's cave, right? Now, what is the meaning and what is going on in Plato's cave? I'll just rehearse it real quickly. 
Imagine that there are a bunch of people living in a cave who've lived in the cave all their life and it's completely dark in there except for fire. But the fire is behind them and they're ch chained up in a way that they can only look forward. So they can't even see the fire. But they see the, the shadows on the cave wall that the firelight casts of various things. And that's what they think is real. Ah, that's reality, those, the way those shadows move. And they try to understand when one shadow overtakes another shadow. They try to become wise about what's going to happen with the shadows on the cave wall cast by the fire behind them that they cannot see. One of the prisoners, they are actually prisoners in the cave, that's why they're chained. One of them is set free and taken out to the surface. So first he sees the fire behind. Says, oh. Oh. And he's taken up to the surface and he sees the real objects. Right? He sees trees and rivers and not shadows of things. And then he tries to look at the sun, but he's lived his whole life underground in the dark and it's too bright for him. Now, what's the point of all that? The point of that is to destroy everything. Because Plato says, just as that prisoner, we would pity him that he mistakes the shadows for reality. Just as we feel sorry that when he got up and saw the real world, he wouldn't know what it was or what to do with it. Just as we would feel pity for him that he can't look at the sun because his eyes can't take in all that light. In fact, even the sunny day would throw him for a loop. So, the people who are looking at reality and looking at the real sun and are able to see it are behind another super reality with a super sun that they it's too bright for them, and they think that this reality is real, but it's no more than the images, the shadows cast by the fire they can't see on the cave wall. So the point of the, of the uh, cave wall story that Plato tells, the myth, is to say, this reality isn't real. You can't know, you poor benighted workers can't know the real truth that I, the philosopher, you know, have strong eyes and I can look with my mind's eye at the real sun, not that physical sun, but the form of the good, which illuminates everything, or later it would be called God. So he uses, it's a stolen concept. You see, he uses the comparison of shadows to real objects to say that real objects aren't real objects. They're only shadows. So it's complete reverse of the hierarchy. First, we are aware, I'm looking out the window at trees and a lake. I'm on vacation, as I said, in Maine, a flag on a flagpole. First, I'm aware of that kind of thing. And then I 
become aware of shadows. Probably kids become aware of shadows when they're about two or three, long after they've been accustomed to seeing reality. And a little later, they learn that thing, lights cast a shadow and all that. So our knowledge of shadows, which are not unreal, they're real. They're not as informative or as usable as the objects that cast them, but there's nothing like defective about a shadow. So a little later, he learns about light casting shadow. So the knowledge of shadows and caves and walls and fires and light casting shadows and so forth is all derivative from our knowledge of trees and lakes and our bodies and flags and so forth, the regular macroscopic objects we see. And yet Plato is trying to use the derivative to negate that from which it derives, the fundamental. Uh, I see we're not going to finish. Because we're only up to the ancients. I want, I want to say a little bit about the Christians, and then there's a big break in human history when we go from Augustine in 200, 280, I have to look that up, but ancient times after Plato and Aristotle, there's a big break to the 1600s when Descartes starts up again. So let's say that Aristotle was Plato's student, was hierarchical. He was the hero in the whole philosophy. He's the reason why I can talk to you on advanced technology. He's the great discoverer of the means of knowledge and what philosophy really has to say. And he begins with the same thing, the law of non-contradiction, the same thing can, cannot be, well, it's the way it's translated. Let me give you the way it's usually translated. The same attribute cannot both belong and not belong to the same subject at the same time and in the same respect. In the Greek, it's really the same cannot belong to the same, in the same, for the same, at the same. Greek has that way of leaving out the entity. Well, that's another whole story. But let's get to the Christians. Let there be light. Of course, that's the Jews too. But the religious takeover from uh, the Greek and Roman times. Let there be light, God said. That's the start. In the beginning was the word. No, in the beginning was the fact. Words are human creations. Let there be light. Cannot be the start of anything. God cannot be the start of anything. If he were, who? how did he get his start? People say, well, who created the world? Well, who created God? The world exists and has always existed will never go out of existence. By the world, I don't just mean planet Earth, I mean the universe. 
Augustine, quote, understanding is the reward of faith. Therefore, seek not to understand that you may believe, but believe that you may understand. Illogic makes understanding possible. Blind belief, belief without reason, makes it possible to understand things, is what he's saying. Now, belief isn't even the issue here. The issue is, do you know or do you not know? You can't say, know that you may understand, because how do you know? You don't know by willing yourself to know. You know by finding evidence, finding facts that show that something is the case. Reducing it to its base and perceptual reality. I know that this is a mouse, that this mouse is in my hand because I see it and I have formed simple concepts based upon what I see. All right, next time we'll take up Descartes, but, but not to, you know, get into the whole system, just to show how anti-hierarchical their starting points are. Descartes, Spinoza, Hume, jumping then over Kant and Hegel to Wittgenstein and Quine. That's about as Aquinas as, mod, as modern as I get, unless you count Ayn Rand, and I do. So we'll close with a proper hierarchical base for all philosophy, as she explains it. Thanks for coming this time. Hope to see you next week.